0: Hello and welcome. This is Brian Wheels, your host for the good, the bad, and the ugly, the aviation maintenance industry, a raw and unscripted look. This is episode five. Holy cow. Um, Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. This is going to be a very, uh, very cool episode. Today we are talking about line maintenance versus hangar maintenance. The argument, which is better, a basic breakdown and the importance of GenFam training. Coming up. Alright, this is part one of episode five. We're going to discuss the argument of which is better, the line maintenance or the hanger maintenance. A basic breakdown of the two for those of you listening that do not not know the the basics, um, general outline, and I'll break that down for you. And uh, the second part, we're going to discuss the importance of GenFam training. So first of all, line maintenance is the maintenance of the aircraft at the gate, generally, and is the most routine type of maintenance. Um, it's, uh, it consists of post-flight, pre-flight, uh, service checks, overnight checks, etc., uh non-routine uh, discrepancies that occur, um, whereas hangar maintenance, it's a comprehensive check of the aircraft that occurs uh, approximately every six to ten years more or less, uh, hangar maintenance is the taking the entire aircraft apart for inspection and overhaul. And it consists of uh, A checks, B checks, C checks, D checks, uh, and or modifications. And as I've discussed previously, I, I think that new mechanics to the industry should start out in the hangar environment first. Learn the aircraft before going out to the line environment. Um, mechanics, uh, ha, can refer to themselves as either a hanger mechanic or a line mechanic. Um, you know, personally, I prefer the line, line environment. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, have worked both sides. Usually when I've been in the hangar, I've been the one assigned to, uh, troubleshooting issues, non-routine, uh, troubleshooting issues, or, or advising folks of troubleshooting steps that, uh, should be taken in the hangar environment. Uh, that kind of thing, and I'm not going to say one type of mechanic is better than the other because there's no such thing. Um, you know, I all I believe is that a, a new mechanic should start off in the hangar, but that is not the way it is nowadays. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I was I was asked recently which environment I think has more political bullshit. Again, there, there's no real good answer. Um, the, the hangar environment has bs stemming from you know improper workflow scheduling and manpower conflicts tooling parts equipment issues all the way to dealing with the good old boy club mentality but you know the line environment has it too uh a little bit less though on the tooling and equipment side of things as um you know you if you if you have a few cancellations or delays on a flight due to not having tooling or the equipment that you you should have as a line station generally those line station managers get their peepee smacked pretty quick so that doesn't it's it doesn't happen as often to have tooling or equipment issues at line stations but it, it still it still can but in the hangar you're you're somewhat have a more time flexibility uh, to deal with those issues, whereas the line um whereas on the line the saying of time is money is very very true because a, a delayed or a cancelled flight adds up, not to mention you know the pissed off passengers that are going to kick your ass <laughs> or want to um I, I remember when after I got laid off from Timco slash hako I was asked uh later um that year to return uh to the MRO, because they had a new customer, Alaska Airlines, and they were setting up a new hangar. And um, so I went out to um, Greenville and uh, assisted the the new project manager in kind of setting the hangar up and and getting everything squared away so when the first plane came, they were going to hit the ground running, which it really meant is... Can you help the can you help the project manager do his job? And I've done project management before, and I've been involved with project management, and I fully understand the you know what it takes to make a hangar run effectively. A uh, little bit of a rant. Uh, this particular project manager was a complete incompetent idiot. Um, you know, he was the typical happy go lucky. I'm your friend. I'm your buddy. Hey, let's, let's hang out pal type of manager. Um, until the moment you show him up or until the moment that other people are like, Hey, you know, what's going on wheels? Hey, you're doing a great job. And this manager is like, Oh shit. People are praising this guy who's just came here to help us out temporarily. Fuck this guy. And then he turns immediately and finds a way to get, you know, to get rid of you and stab you in the back. Um, <laughs> you know, that's another thing that frustrate, frustrates me to no end. Managers who, who severely lack self-confidence and are so quick to become threatened by you at the drop of a hat. Uh, you know, these type of people, they're, they're concerned about their bosses recognizing your talent over theirs. And so they immediately become threatened. Um you know, I, I'll have a lot of people say, well, that's not just aviation, that's anywhere. And you're right, but this, this is an aviation, aviation-oriented aviation podcast. I'm speaking to, you know, what I've observed in aviation. So anyways, so I show up and right away start asking, you know, the project manager questions. I mean, this is like on the first day. So I'm asking them, where, where's the, the maintenance task cards? Yeah, have you generated only uh, non-routine items or if you have routine items, is there anything specific that the aircraft or the customer rep wants done differently? Um, are these task cards organized, are they placed in proper sequencing, so that you can create an efficient flow? Uh, and the reason being is, I, I have been at MROs where, you know, either they pull the aircraft into the hangar fully fueled, big no no. Or they pull the aircraft in the hangar. They defuel it. They start taking panels off, and then someone says, "Wait, wait, wait, wait! We were supposed to do we were supposed to do operational checks before we pulled the the aircraft in." And then they have to put the aircraft together, push it back out, because that's that's normally when when the when an aircraft comes uh, arrives for heavy check, you know, you'll have inspectors out there. You know, and sometimes they'll even videotape in the condition of the plane as it arrived, and. You'll be doing post-flight uh, ops checks on the aircraft, which is nothing more than ensuring that the plane didn't arrive with a problem that wasn't created by the MRO. It's, it's you know, cover your butt type of thing. But uh, I, I've seen so many, so many MROs dick up proper maintenance flow. And there's no set rule as to how long it should take an aircraft to be in the hangar but I can give you uh, an idea. Um, a 3.7, okay, a three, uh, really it doesn't matter which, you know, there's no real difference between the two models of it, except if you have an ADS that you have to, uh, uh, advisory directives that you have to, or I'm sorry, worthiness directives that you have to comply with. That takes longer. But if you don't, it doesn't really uh, mean, matter what specific model you have. For a three seven, you should have that out the door at a, during a normal seat check in about twenty five days. Okay, I've seen them go out the door in twenty days, but that was a a kind of a interesting situation because we had more manpower than we really needed. Um, but about twenty five days, you should have a three seven out the door, a five seven, and a six seven. They take about thirty. Days they should be out the door. A triple seven, 30 to 35 days could be less, but the larger the aircraft you have coming into the hangar, the more manpower you should have. That's just common sense, anywho. So let's go back. I'm, I'm asking this project manager questions you know, um, you know, what does your manpower look like? How are, how are we doing for tooling? Is the GSE equipment ready to go? Um, is everything on the flow board set up? Uh, Have you spoken to the customer reps? Do they have any concerns and anything that warrants, uh, you know, uh, some more uh, discussion? Um, Have you worked with these guys before? Is all your tooling that you need calibrated ready to go? Blah, 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 blah. Okay? And these are all questions that I ask anyways, you know? So this guy just looks at me blankly and he says, no, I haven't done this before. It's my first time as a PM. So I ask him, what's his? What's your prior experience? And he's like, well, I was in the paint shop. And uh, then he goes on to say, well, it's it's all who you know. You know what I mean? It's all who you know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean, dickhead. You sucked your way into this position in lieu of paying your good old boy do clubs, huh? It's your, I mean, come on. And the guy pretty much told me, he says, yeah, I'm in the good old boy club, you know, I sucked a few cocks and look where I'm at. I got this job. I was a painter. This guy never turned a freaking wrench, and he's a project manager. So, anywho, to make a long story short, after I got this clown squared away, I kind of thought they were going to keep me around. Um, you know they they had just they had just shut down line services. You know earlier, I lost my job because you know this Heiko America's takeover, and. Uh, they, they just wanted me there to get their hangar set up and to, to, you know, to show this PM how to be a project manager, and that was it. So anyways, yes, uh, the hangar might have more time flexibility, which generally just means they're, they're going to push the aircraft completion date back a few weeks to make up for failures, which it's pretty common. Now, on the line, again, there is a, a smidgen more accountability for that nonsense, but it does still happen. And I've been to line stations where things were horribly disorganized and out of sorts. Um, but the, the line station, I mean, yeah, you make money in the hangar environment, the car, you know, whomever company you're working for, they make money in the line environment, but you're quicker to lose money on the line than you are in the hangar. so a disorganized, a horribly disorganized line station is very, is either going to get shut down or they're going to, they're going to clean house management pretty quick. So all right, let's get back on, on track here. So the, the line is a fast paced environment, right? It's, it, it, some people cannot stomach it and they eventually get weeded out or hopefully they, they get weeded out. I I've in my uh, experience, I've seen more people just get frustrated and upset and they just go back to the hangar than stay in the line. Um, during time, uh, down times, though, uh, no gate calls, etc., you can relax and pretty much do whatever you want. Walk around, go up in the terminal, exercise. I mean, you know, exercise as in, you know, walk, walk around, get some exercise, make phone calls, screw around on your phone, take a very long bathroom break. It's, it's more relaxed in a sense. Whereas the hangar, you don't have the luxury of that, that kind of relaxed environment. Um, as, because when you're completed with one task, you're handed another. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just two, two slightly different worlds, if you get, get what I'm saying. Um, you know, the, politicals, the, the, the political bullshit, though, plays out in both. Uh, it, it, still, it's the mechanics who make the money, it's not the managers. They don't like to think so, but you know, in it, in it, many leads, managers, supervisors, they forget that it's the mechanics, it's the it's the boots on the ground, turning the wrench that make the money. They don't. <laughs> they man, They manage how the money is made. They move the money around. And put some in their pocket, sure, but all in all, it's the mechanics who make the money. It's not the managers. It's not the supervisors. It's not the leads. Um, so again, that's the difference between the line environment and the, the hang environment in a nutshell. They both have their quirks. Um, I just prefer the line. It's, it's more challenging. It's more fast paced. There's always something generally something different that comes up and, uh, it's just, I, I, just, I just enjoy it. You know, some people, they can't hack it and that's fine, you know? Um, but it's just, it's just two different worlds. Um, no, you know, a hanger mechanic isn't better than a line mechanic. A line mechanic isn't better than a hanger mechanic. Um, I, I will give, give the hanger this, uh, if you've worked in the hanger for any length of time, You really, really know that plane well. And there have been occasions where, you know, I've called the hangar and asked the hangar for questions. I mean, they get to see the inside and outside of that plane all the time. Although a lot of what they do is repetitive, is the type of work, they do know where certain items and components are on the plane that you might have forgotten because you hadn't had to to look for it or work on it for a while so yeah hanger mechanics I mean they, they've got their place just as line mechanics do not one is better than the other they're you know they're they both have a job to do right so anywho we are just about ready to go on to our second segment so we will take a short break and uh we will be right back with you Welcome back. This is the second segment of episode five. We're going to discuss GenFam and why it's important. Uh, those of you who don't know what GenFam is, it's an acronym for general familiarization. Uh, GenFam training is the aircraft technical familiarization that um, everyone should be receiving. Uh, so <clears throat> when I worked for... Uh, Ames in Ohio. That was Airborne Maintenance and Engineering Service. Uh, I was hired in there as a senior mechanic for the 5.7 and 6.7 line. I had no idea that within you know, a very short period of time I'd become an instructor and a course developer at Ames. And I loved it. Um, I really, really enjoyed teaching GenFam. Uh, there's something about Sharing the knowledge, asking questions, you know, questions being asked to me, finding the answers together, and sharing knowledge in a group that is, you know that is just very rewarding. I, I absolutely loved uh, teaching Fam, And um, you know we've for those mechanics listening, we've all had some shitty Genfam courses though, and, and instructors. Uh, the, you know, the type of class where, where you sit for eight hours a day, for two or three weeks, while the instructor drones on and on, reciting word for word what you're reading in your student handout or your your binder, and you know as, you're not trying as you're not trying to fall asleep, right? You know, or trying not to fall asleep. It's it's interesting. Um, you know, what did you learn from the, those classes? Nothing. You know, or very little, because the some GenFam courses are horribly taught. And it's usually taught by a guy who is on his last legs, he's almost out the door to retirement, and he doesn't care. But he's reading, word for word, exactly what you're trying to read and comprehend. And it's hard not to just fall asleep. It's, you know, there are just some really poor uh, GenFam classes. Um, So when I became a GenFam instructor, and, and more importantly a course developer, uh, for the 3.7 NG at Ames, uh, I reached out to my father, who had been an instructor in the energy industry for 40 plus years. And he shared some of the trade secrets of good teaching. And then I did a fair amount of research on my own. And um, what I found was that uh, pretty much every tradesman out there, irregardless of what trade you're in, they're kinesthetic learners. And in short, this are these are folks who learn best by carrying out physical activities, projects, i.e. hands-on, rather than li- listening to a, a lecture or, or watching a, a demonstration. Kinesthetic learners, they process information while being physically active or engaged, whether this is hands-on, an actual aircraft, you know, good luck or classroom hands-on projects, or interactive CBT courses, which are the, the very next best thing. Now, I was really fortunate at Ames, where our launch customer for the 37, 7 um, they actually provided us an aircraft that I could allow the students limited hands-on uh, projects with. Um, or if it wasn't, you know, hands-on projects, we would go out to the hangar, and I would, as you know, let's say we're, you know, I was teaching, you know, uh, pneumatics or hydraulics or, you know, flight controls. I could, you know, we would take a break intermittently, go down to the hangar and I would point out the components to the, the students, to the class. And I would get questions and feedback from them. They would ask, you know, how about this? How about that? And I could show them. And then, um, we could uh, again, it was you know, it was limited, but we could do some simple operational checks on the uh, the aircraft. And when that particular plane itself went through um, started its sea check, I was able to take the class out. We could watch gear swings, uh, we could do uh, watch them do um, operational checks, and that way they could really visualize and had a, a better visualization and understanding of what they're being taught in class. Um, so that was, that was really, really cool. And, and, you know, many training departments, that is a luxury to actually have an aircraft that you can, you know, put your hands on, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Uh, but anyways, the, the next best thing to that is a proper PowerPoint design implementation or a really good CBT interactive CBT program. Um, and it's just, uh, it was it was very, very interesting. And I, I learned that during, like, PowerPoints, um, bold colors such as blue, green, uh, and red were the best for text, uh, to put your text. And, and you limiting PowerPoint slides, each PowerPoint slide to two or less paragraphs while using plenty of animations worked best to keep, Kinesthetic learners, which again were the majority of people in the class, um, t- to keep their attention span going. It, you know, and I could go on and on as this is another area that I'm very passionate about is proper GenFam training. Um, but if you're not involved in the process of teaching, you just have to suffer through poorly led classroom or GenFam trainings uh, and, and hope that you can retain enough information for when you return to the floor. And when I was a supervisor and a manager, I noticed that, you know, I, I was I was always hoping that the training department would send me back. And generally, they were newer mechanics, or they were older mechanics who, yeah, had worked the aircraft, but it was required that them had this, a uh, Gen class, particular GenFam class that they didn't have. Um, but the majority were were new mechanics. And I was always hoped that that training department would just you could they could send them down to me, I could start them off on simple tasks, you know surface the hydraulics, okay you know something like that just very simple, and they could find their way around you know uh one one place I was working in particular their, their training department was horrible, and I had to go up there and I said, "Look, I said you know." I'm supervising this hangar right now and I I need people who are at least have a general basic idea of where things are located on the aircraft. And I ended up spending almost a a week off and on with this training department and in, in kind of, um uh, editing some of their, their training curriculum and trying to get them on the right page too. And it eventually it, it panned out well. And, uh, You know, I was happy with it, but, uh, there are, there are places that, um, companies that won't even offer you a GenFam training, offer you GenFam training until after six months of employment because they're concerned about people quitting right after they receive GenFam training, um, during their, their onboarding experience or, um, and that's typical really though, uh, with contract maintenance folks, contractors. Uh, contractors have tend to have the tendency to just go to a place to get the, the Gen FAM training um, during the onboard process, you know, after you're hired, and then they skip town just so they can get the GenFam. And I understand why companies won't offer GenFam training, but six months of employment? I mean, that's six months that you have new mechanics on the floor or on the line nowadays that they're they're having to literally learn from the mechanics around them who are willing to offer their knowledge and advice. Uh, so I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, you know, because what it's doing is It's limiting not only the training and fulfillment of knowledge for the students, um, but you you can't set your employees up for failure like that. And that is a way to do so. Not giving them the adequate training, uh, the tools, the equipment, not giving them enough to be successful. And it hurts everybody. And now I've had this discussion with folks who, who just outright disagreed with me, and uh, you know, you're you're telling them, uh, you know, making a, you know, you're you're telling them that making an employee employee wait six months is ridiculous, and they say, well, that doesn't result in a lack of efficiency. I said, well, yeah, it does. I said because are you going to be frustrated when five or six new mechanics come knocking on your door? Or knocking on your door but knocking let's say knocking on your box and say hey uh, I've got this task card here and uh you know what's an IDG how do I service the IDG or uh, I got this task card here how do I put the how do I put the flaps and slats down or I got this task card here and it says you know I gotta open the cowls I've never done that. Like you can be a little frustrated and then they're like eh, yeah yeah maybe 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 so it's all about setting your employees up for success, right? Uh, you know, when, when I was a manager, I ensured that the, the tooling and parts were squared away, that I had competent leads and supervisors who were ready, they were willing to take on extra work and, 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 and that delegation. And, and I had a meeting with every shift initially, and I would clearly outline my expectations. And I gave them a chance to voice their expectations for me and any concerns they might have. And I kept these meetings up on at least once a month. I would have a meeting with every shift. I want to make sure that, you know, say, hey, guys, you know, remember when I initially met with you, I outlined my expectations for the group, right? Right. I gave you guys an opportunity to outline your expectations for me, voice concerns that you have. Is 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 everything good? Has anything changed? Let me know. And I ensured that everybody understood that I had an open door policy in the truest sense of the word. And what I mean by that is how many of you, had a real concern, and you know, let's say you go to your lead, and your lead says, well, how would you go with the manager, you go to the, the manager, or maybe a supervisor, you know, you go into his office, knock on the door, he says, hey, how's it going, it's like, yeah, I got, just want to talk to you real quick, but as soon as you sit down, you, you, you start talking to this guy, and you know, you kind of see him zone out, right, you know, and he just, he doesn't seem, he seems disinterested And what you have to say, almost like he's making mental notes, as if, you know, as if saying, well, this guy's a troublemaker, I'm going to keep my eye on him because I really don't need this type of bullshit walking into my office. I'm sure it's happened to to many of you. And an open door policy is just kind of like a, it's just kind of, to to many managers, many supervisors, it's just a, a fluffy, floofy thing to say to make people feel good in the moment. But they don't really mean it, and uh, and next to that, I, I I work to keep the employees happy as much as possible, and their concerns I ensure are are, are validated, and um, I don't out the gate start judging people because they come to me with a problem, and I I, I see that lacking many many times over. Um, it, it's just a it's just a real damn shame, um, but. Nowadays, though, uh, this has all fallen to the wayside in lieu of making the best money. Putting the employees and the fi- flying public at risk, and, and it really does boil down to that. Uh, employees who are treated like numbers and not human beings, they won't give you 100%. And safety, efficiency, overall quality of work, it'll suffer and that results in poor workmanship on the aircraft. And you tell me that that cannot result in a risk to the aircraft, a risk to the people flying on the aircraft. If anyone wants to make that argument and, give, and articulate why, let me know. But I, I I, doubt any of you could say, hey, 100%, it doesn't work that way. I doubt it. Um, I... Again, it's one of these things that I'm passionate about, and I, I, I wish the industry would change a little, and it's not; it's going the opposite direction. Um, but to sum it up, yes. Uh, so we discussed the difference between line maintenance, right, and the hangar maintenance environment. Um, you know and I outlined a little bit of the differences between them, the good, the bad, sometimes the ugly, uh, but the, the political good old boy club bullshit still exists, and there's not a great way to get around that unless you get yourself into a position where you can enact change, and even then you have a uphill battle. But, uh, yeah, line maintenance mechanic versus hangar mechanic, they both work on aircraft. Some of them know things better or differently than the others. And I have, more, on more than one occasion, called the hangar, and if I was working on the line, said, hey, you know, this, this, and that, where is this, you know, where is this part located, or where is this located? I I haven't, you know, had to do this in a while. and They're, they're generally more than happy to help you. And uh, as would if they call the line, and, Ask the line a question. Hey, have you guys ever seen this before? Yeah, yeah, this you know happens so often because of this and this and that. And then we discuss GenFam and the importance of proper general familiarization training and, and why it, it's just so damn important. But that about sums it up for episode five. Uh, again, I really, really appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. And if any of you got questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, stories, experience you want to share with me, or hell, if you want to come live on the show, drop me a line at the message me link or email me at apmechanicpodcast at aol.com. Again, that is apmechanic podcast one word at aol.com i would love to have you on the show and uh, until next time this is brian wheels for the good the bad and the ugly the aviation maintenance industry a raw and unscripted look we will talk to you later take care